0: Good morning, North Canton Chapel.
1: It's good to see you this morning. That's what I get for turning off my pack. It's my fault. Uh, so, my name is Micah. I'm the worship pastor here. And uh, if you're joining us, if you're one of our guests this morning, or if you're joining us online today for the first time, we are about halfway through our series in the book of 1 Peter. And so, we've been taking a look at this series. We're actually over halfway through, which for some of you, if you're thinking about summer, realizing that we're doing this series, in the summer, and we are over halfway through. Some of you just got real sad because summer is, is closing out soon, so sorry about that. Uh, but today, we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. Now, these verses, for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, okay, uh, these verses function a little bit like the Two Towers. Okay, So if you have never seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you hop in watching the Two Towers... With no context of the Fellowship of the Ring, you are going to be greatly confused. Likewise, if you don't go all the, way, all the way to the end of the series and watch the return of the king, you never figure out where we're going. Because this passage in 8 through 22, it picks up in the middle of some of Peter's thoughts. And it ends fairly abruptly. It just cuts off. Uh, and so as we're walking through this, this message today and through these verses, you may feel a little bit like, man, did we, we just end right in the middle? We do. And it's okay, because we're going to come to some resolution in the coming weeks. Uh, but if you would, go ahead and turn there, chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. And as we are getting ready to look at these verses, there's some good things for us to remember. First is that Peter, 1 Peter is a letter. Okay? And so in the same way that if your spouse or a loved one were to write you a letter, you would not pick up the letter scan a couple paragraphs down, read one line, and toss the letter away, because that would be strange. Nor should we do that with 1 Peter. The context of this letter matters. And so we're going to do a little bit of a recap. I like to say we do episode recaps to kind of catch everybody up. And so we're going to do a brief look at that before we dig into some of this text today. So we need to remember that Peter is writing to a group of Christians. This is a group of elect exiles that have been spread throughout the area, and they are wrestling with a tension. And the tension that they are wrestling with is, how do we live holy lives? And we saw first that Peter begins with this understanding of identity. We learned that we need to learn of who we are and to whom we belong. And that when we understand that as Christians, that we are loved sons and daughters by a God who has an unconditional love, then when Peter says, and he reminds us of an old passage where he says, now be holy as Christ is holy. And when we see that, we realize it's not works-based, but it's relationship-based. Because we love our God so much, we would desire to live holy lives in response to who he is. But then he takes this holy living a step further. And that's where we've been the last couple of weeks. Because we go, okay, yeah, I get it. Be holy as I am holy. I'm supposed to try to follow Christ. But that gets hard when we move that into relationships, doesn't it? If it were just us in a vacuum, we'd probably be okay, maybe. But then we start putting be holy as Christ is holy into our relationships with government. We looked at that a few weeks ago. How do you live in a tension of of holy living when a governing human institution makes decisions that don't align with Christian values? What does it mean to live in holy living, to have this tension of holy living in maybe a more difficult spot within our homes? And we looked at that last week. Even in our relationships, in our marriage, we are called to holy living And so Peter takes all of this, and the heart of what he is trying to say, the heart of where we've been the last couple weeks, is one central thing. Christians who are suffering, Christians who are living in a culture that is antagonistic toward Christianity and to Christ, you have a living hope, and his name is Jesus. You can rest in him, you can trust in him. And as you navigate the murky waters of the place that you live, trying to figure out how do I follow Jesus when everything around me feels so tense? Anybody else in the room feel that? How do we do it? Peter's writing tells us that we should recognize the hope that we have in Christ and that we live in response to that hope. But... He never promises us that when we live in response to that hope, that everything gets easy. That would be great, right? Like we'd check the box. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you now. Everything is easy. But that's not what he says. He doesn't call us to be happy as God is happy. Instead, he calls us to be holy as God is holy. God doesn't call us to happiness. He calls us to holiness. And Peter writes to Christians that we're literally facing extreme persecution. And do you think that he is telling them in these moments, Hey guys, you know what? Just put a smile on. Live your best life now. Because God just wants you to be happy as your body is ripped apart by lions for the entertainment of the emperor. Hey Christians, it's okay. Jesus is your living hope. He just cares about your comfort. As you're dipped in hot wax and set on fire to light the garden at night. These were real persecutions that the Christians of this time faced. Church, hear me. By and large, American Christians are not persecuted. We are just no longer in the majority. And so it's more common for us to be disagreed with. Disagreement is not persecution. Persecution. Persecution will come. We see that in Scripture. It's promised to us. But until we are forced to gather secretly in our basements for fear of our lives, we need to get a better grasp on the fact that nowhere in Scripture are we promised that God will take our discomforts away while we walk this earth. That is reserved for glory. And one day, that day will come. and It'll be a great day, right? I'm looking forward to that. But until then, we live in the tension. We are promised the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is our comforter, the Holy Spirit who is peace in the midst of trial. Why would God give us a comforter if we didn't need to be comforted? Why would he give us someone who would bring us peace if he thought, you know what, these guys are going to be great, they'll just follow me and they'll be Living peaceful lives forever, no. But in order to have peace in the midst of trial, we must live in submission to Christ as Lord with humility and unity and walk in his ways. And this is now where Peter begins to draw our focus in verses eight through 22. So last week, you remember, we wrapped up our thoughts on mutual submission. And we talked about what that looks like in the marriage relationship. And so, again, Peter's walked through government, what it means to live like in our culture, and our world in holy living, What it's like to live in our marriages and our families with holy living. And now he brings the church into the conversation. Verse 8 he says, Finally, all of you, who is he writing to? Christians. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy. Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And here in verse 10, Paul is actually quoting Psalm 34. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what is he saying here? Peter says, church, church that is facing earthly suffering, do not allow it to divide you. Instead, live holy lives that are marked by unity, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble minds. Church, does this describe us over the last two years? I can't answer that. Only you can. Peter takes the legwork of how we should live holy lives holy lives in our world, in our marriages, and now he focuses on the church, and he says, church, remember, in your suffering, do not turn on each other. We will suffer, but how we respond to one another in that suffering as sons and daughters of God points to where we place our hope. He just comes out of the gate, doesn't he? And it's a little bit like he comes to the table and he's going, okay, so I just talked to husbands and wives and everybody that was single in the room disengaged, right? Like you checked out of the box and he says, no, 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 everybody, if you follow Jesus, if you're reading this letter and you're a Christian, lean in, because this is what we do. When we suffer, when we are hurting, we push away, don't we? When you're mad, when you're suffering, you tend to be more irritable, don't you? You want to push, you want to fight. He says, don't. Church, remember, in the midst of suffering, when you are hurting and your desire will more easily be to hurt others because you are hurting, remember that we are called to unity, brotherly love, tender hearts, and humble minds. you remember from weeks past, as Christians, we have a living hope in the person and work of Jesus. We have hope in Christ crucified and in Christ to come. And how we respond to suffering tells a watching world how secure our hope really is. Because we can say all day long that we have a living hope in Jesus. But if a watching world watches us fight and divide And lose it when suffering comes. They go, man, Jesus isn't really that secure. And so Peter then gives us something to do. Verses 13 and 14, he calls us to remember that when the storms of life come, we have no reason to fear. When we are hurting, when we are suffering, we have no reason to fear. Look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. When the storms of life come, church, you have no reason to fear. I love that. Who is there to harm you? When we place our hope in the living hope, we can suffer securely knowing that there is nothing that man can do to us. You know, one of the songs that the people of Israel used to sing out loud to remind them of this truth is found in Psalm 118, verses four through six. It says, let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord and the Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What incredible hope in that. That we have a God that we can rest in and trust in. Church, we will suffer. We will have trial. We will face hard times, but we have nothing to fear because of who we are in Christ. Because of his work on the cross, we can rest in him now and forever Isn't that good? And then Peter calls us to defend this hope that he's been talking about for this whole chunk of his letter. Look at verse 15 and 16. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect and having a good conscience. So when we suffer for righteousness' sake, when we suffer for holy living, we shouldn't fear. But instead, we should allow our hearts to honor Christ as holy. That we should, as we say here, make much of Jesus every day to everyone. That we should lift up Jesus in the midst of suffering because there is no one like him. And so in our hearts, Peter says, honor Christ as holy, being prepared to make a defense. This word defense, it's a Greek word, it's a legal term. It's apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics, and it literally means to present an argument in court. Okay, To present an argument in court. To be so secure in your living hope that you are able, when people look at your life, as you are facing suffering and they say you know what you seem to hold this together more than anybody else or you like you seem really you seem okay how are you okay right now and you can answer because i have hope in jesus because of his death and resurrection i don't i don't fear what this world has to offer because this is not forever this is temporary And because I know and can rest in Jesus, I'm just passing through. This is not my home. Where is your hope today? If someone were to ask you, hey, you know, you seem like you've got some things like you're doing okay here, but it seems like you shouldn't be. Why do you have such hope? What would you say? Is your hope in Jesus? But then I'm going to lean in a little bit on what Peter says there. He says it's not enough for us to just be able to defend as if we were in a courtroom. He says that there is a way in which we should defend. right? And some of us, we like the defend part. We're like, oh yeah, let me go all day long. I can tell you all day why Jesus is the best thing and you need to know him. But there is a way. What does he say? He says that we should defend our hope. With gentleness, with respect, and having a good conscience. Church, can we admit something? This is me admitting this as well. Sometimes we get this way wrong, don't we? And we've seen it, and we know it when it's done wrong. When someone pushes back against our hope, and instead of speaking with gentleness and respect or compassion and genuine love for a person made in God's image, we retaliate. And it becomes more about our pride and being right than it does about seeing a person who is made in God's image and wanting them so desperately to know him. May it not be so with us, church. We say things that may be true, but we say them without grace. And we're going, hey, I, look, it's a true thing. I should say it. Yeah, sometimes if someone tells you the truth in a wrong way, you don't receive it well either, do you? Right? Right? We've all been on that side of the conversation. When someone says something to you that is very true, but you are not ready to receive it, or they say it in a way that is maybe unkind, and you're going, I don't care how true that is. I don't want to hear another word out of your mouth, right? Or we take the social media and we put up the all caps post, and it's a post that demeans and diminishes instead of building up in love. We know it's true. And we know that we're all guilty of it sometimes. But Peter says there is a way to do this. You know, I've, I've got a few friends in my life that I disagree with deeply. I think everyone should. I think you should have some friends that you regularly disagree with. I think that's a good practice. Um, there's a buddy of mine I grew up with in high school. His name is Steven. And the only two things that he and I agree on are that Christian heavy music is really cool and that North Carolina barbecue is the best barbecue. Okay just is what it is. Sorry. Um, You can disagree if you want. That's fine. All caps, post me later. Um, But we're a strange pair. And the thing that I love about Stephen and I is that we can disagree gently, respectfully, having a good conscience, and we can walk away from it being completely good friends. But there's times that we do it wrong. There have been times when we have disagreed and I have wanted to win the argument (laughs) just to be right instead of, like, really valuing a relationship and what this brings. And so I've just had to call him back and go, hey, Stephen, like, I'm I'm sorry. And Stephen is a fellow brother in Christ, but we vote differently, we think differently. Like, everything that is differently that you could try to think of, he and I sit on different sides of it. Like, we should not be friends in the world's scheme of things. We should have canceled culture to each other a long time ago. Like, it's just how it works. But the only reason we are able to do that is because... I know that Stephen prays for me as a father and a husband, and I pray for him. I pray for the ministry that he does in North Carolina, and he prays for the ministry that we do here in Ohio. He prays for our church. And even though we completely disagree on just about everything, we have somehow this weird unity in Christ. And sometimes we still laugh about it. But the thing is this. When we are trying to defend the hope that we have with gentleness, respect, walking away having a good conscience, feeling like I have honored this other person and I have honored the truth and we're good, it's easy, but sometimes it's even difficult with Stephen and he's not trying to kill me or persecute my faith. Right? Like he is a fellow brother in Christ. But Peter is writing to Christians who are facing death for their beliefs and he tells them to defend the hope they have in Christ very likely in a courtroom where they would be given the chance to renounce their faith in Jesus or to literally become lion chunks. And he's going, you guys, defend the hope you have with gentleness, respect, and having a good conscience. A few Sundays back, Riley and I, my oldest daughter, we went up to a a Guardians game, and we're getting ready to walk into into the park and we're standing in line got our tickets in hand and there's a gentleman on the street corner he's got a sign and a megaphone you guys all know the guy right and his sign says repent or burn and he's shouting as loud as he possibly can he's going repent believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins forgiveness uh, repent of your idolatry repent and he just goes down this line of sins and he's shouting and he's shouting and he's shouting Return to Jesus. He is the only way to heaven. And I just feel Riley like step closer to me. You know, like she just kind of tucks in a little tighter. And it was interesting because I looked down at her and I said, Riley, this is an example of someone saying the right thing in the wrong way. And she kind of looked at me and I said, do you know what I mean? And she said, sort of. I said, do we believe that we should repent of our sin? She said, Yes. Do we believe that Jesus saves us from our sin and he is the only way to heaven? Yes. I said, so do we actually disagree with what this man is saying? No. I said, so why does it feel different? Because the right thing said in the wrong way becomes white noise and falls on deaf ears. So when Peter tells us to defend the hope that we have with gentleness and respect... He didn't say it was easy, but he did say it was worth it. Look in verse the end of verse 16 going into 17. He says, we should defend the hope that we have with gentleness and respect so that when you are slandered, so that when someone makes fun of you and your family for believing in Jesus, so that those who revile your good behavior in Christ, for those who look at you and say, you know what? You just think you're better than me. Look, you're a Christian, you got all your stuff together, whatever, you never do anything wrong. So that when those things happen, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer, words that we all love to hear, right? It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is still talking about Living holy lives. He is still talking about what it means to live in the tension of holy living. And he says that even in our suffering, we are called to holiness. Even when someone pushes back on the hope we have, we are still called to holiness. And so Peter is presented to us in verses 8 through 17 that we will suffer, and how we respond to that suffering matters. And now in verses 8 through 22, Peter is going to bring us back to a theme that, again, has moved through this entire letter. He keeps coming back to it. It's that our living hope is found in Christ, crucified and in Christ to come. Look in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. What we learn here is that Jesus, our hope, suffered for us. So again, remember who he is writing to. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering They are in the tension of constant persecution and he is telling them to remember, you are united with Christ in your suffering. You don't have a savior that doesn't get it. We have a savior who is deeply acquainted with our suffering. He suffered to the point of death on the cross where he took our sin on himself and made a way for us to have new life in him. But then Peter points us to this thought. He says that Jesus died once for sins. Some of your translations may read once for all. This is part of the Greek word hapax. And the meaning of this word is once and for all time. And so what this would have meant for those in this context, it would have reminded them and been in contrast to a sacrificial system that they had known for most of their lives. A system in which they had to continually offer over and over again sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. And Peter's reminding them, guys, Jesus did it once and it's done. He died once for all time. He was the perfect atonement for the sin of God's chosen people. He didn't have to go back to the cross over and over and over again. It was good and perfect. Jesus, the only one able to live a perfect, sinless, holy life, the only one righteous, became sin for us. He became suffering so that he could bring us to God, so that we could be made alive forever in him. And it is through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we are able to have salvation. And if not for Christ, we are dead and lost in our sin without hope. But God... God, who was rich in mercy and who loved us very much, sent Jesus to die on a cross for us so that we might have forgiveness of sin and new life in him. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Is Jesus your living hope? Because as suffering comes, as we are called to live in this tension of holy living, because make no mistake, this is not just for Christians that Peter is writing to then. It is for us now. When you are suffering, is Jesus your living hope? Look at verses 18 again. I'm going to read the beginning and then skip down. It says, for Christ made alive in the spirit but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So throughout this letter, Peter has taken some time establishing the fact that Jesus is our living hope. But this is the third time that he has drawn specific focus to Jesus. The first time was in chapter one, verses 18 through 19 where we looked at Jesus as the suffering servant, that he was the sacrifice for us, where he shed his blood. Then in chapter 2, verses 21 through 15, we look to Jesus' suffering as an example for how we should handle suffering. So we've gone two times where Peter has gone, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. But now this third time is different because Peter doesn't focus on the suffering Jesus anymore. He focuses on the victorious Jesus. Jesus who has conquered sin and death and hell. Jesus who has ascended to heaven and rules and reigns. And to the suffering Christians who are wondering, will it ever stop? Are we ever going to get through? Is this year ever going to end? He looks to them and he shows an example that they all would have known really well. He points to Noah. He says... Just as Noah and the eight persons were brought through the trial and suffering of the flood. In the 40 days and 40 nights on that boat, wondering, is God really going to be faithful? Is this actually ever going to end? Is God going to do what he promised to do? Is it good? Just as Christ endured the cross and took our sin upon himself, And I wonder if at ever in that point, the humanity of Jesus, as he was taking our sin on himself, if he ever thought, God, is it done yet? Is it finished yet? To the suffering Christian, God is faithful. Even in the moments when you're feeling like, will it ever end? Is it ever going to get better? God will bring you through and Peter reminds them Jesus is still your living hope how he comes through it may not end the way you hope it may not look the way you want it to it may not happen in the timing that you desire but God is faithful sovereign and good and he works all things for your good and his glory and this I feel like we need to kind of step a quick aside here Sometimes our good, what is truly our good, doesn't look like we think it should look. We have one picture in our mind of what it means for it to be good. Sometimes we believe that we should be happy, healthy, wealthy, and we've come to believe sometimes that, hey, as long as I'm good in those three areas, I must be doing good with God. That's a false theology, and it's not in Scripture. When I look to Scripture and I see those who truly follow God, I see people who are not happy, healthy, and wealthy by the world's standards. Instead, they are filled with the joy of the Spirit as they are martyred for their beliefs. I see men and women who are sustained by the sovereign hand of God in the midst of constant persecution, an earthly persecution that never ended until their death. I see those that are provided for consistently by God through drought, famine, and homelessness. A quote that's often attributed to Charles Spurgeon is that we must learn to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Our living hope is Jesus. He suffered once for all time, and now he's ascended to heaven and he rules over all. He works for our good and his glory. And to the suffering Christians then and to the suffering Christians now, Peter says the same thing. Don't forget your living hope. But Peter uses something in verse 21 that is an interesting thing. See, the people of Israel... And the Gentile Christians, they are used to something that we see throughout the Old Testament. There's often times when God proves himself very faithful, and then he tells the people, build a monument. And you're going, what's the deal with all these monuments? You see it all throughout the Old Testament. It's like over and over again. They built an altar, or they built a monument to the Lord. And the answer is, why? is so that your children and your children's children will remember the goodness of God. And so we see throughout Scripture, God knows that sometimes we need something physical to remind us of something supernatural. We need something to look at to go, man, I remember when God came through then. And so I can be confident that he will come through now. And Peter uses something very interesting in verse 21. He uses baptism. Look at it, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal, some of your translations say pledge to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now it's important, just a quick disclaimer for this verse, it's important to know that 1 Peter 3.21 is not the only text in scripture about baptism, and as we've seen from Peter's context of this letter, his goal is not to give you a doctrinal discourse on baptism in one verse. That would be irresponsible. That's not what he's doing here, and so we're not going to treat this like it is, okay? Peter's goal is to encourage persecuted believers to remember that just as they presently suffer, Christ has willingly suffered on their behalf. And so Peter uses baptism as a monument of remembrance to encourage his readers because it drives their attention back to the moment of their repentance of sin and belief in the gospel. It reminds them of the moment of their new life in Christ. But I feel like we need to add a little bit of clarity around this text because we have some modern American Christian thinking that reads into this text. And so we're going to spend just a little bit of time here because it's likely that we read baptism, which now saves you, and we all go, wait, what? Does this save us? Is baptism the thing that saves me? So we need to remember a few things. For the early Christian Baptism, the Greek baptizo, meaning to fully immerse in water, operated differently than it does in our modern church culture. First, baptism was not uniquely a Christian practice. It was not uncommon in that time for a Roman soldier to join the Roman army, and then he would be baptized publicly as an initiation process, letting his friends and family and those in the town know, hey, I am serving Rome. And as he was coming up out of the water, he would often say, Caesar is Lord. Interesting. And so then we have this group of Christians, and this guy named Jesus, who begin to take baptism, and they use it for something altogether different. For the New Testament Christian, baptism was a public visual declaration of allegiance to their service of Jesus as Lord, And if we're honest, it was a little bit of a jab at the Roman government. Because they're saying, we serve no one but Christ. He is it. Baptism, especially in the early church, was also immediate. And this is something different for us. A lot of times we'll have where we accept Christ as our Savior, and then we'll say, hey, so your next step is baptism. We kind of separate these things out. But in many instances in scripture, especially in the early church in the book of Acts, we would have an individual that would hear the good news of the gospel and they would say something like this, what should we do to be saved? And often the New Testament church, the answer was repent and believe and be baptized, you and your whole household. It's almost always in the same conversation. And so the natural question arises for us, right? We begin to start stewing on that a little bit. And we say, does the act of baptism save you? No. Baptism does not save you. The Apostle Paul writes that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Christ is Lord, that we will be saved. Scripture points to the fact that we are regenerated by God, that we are chosen as his children, that the Holy Spirit draws us to salvation through Jesus by the conviction of our sin. John six forty four, Jesus tells us that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws them. So what do we do then with Peter's words on baptism? Because he seems pretty adamant here. I would present to you that for the New Testament church, Baptism was the public confession of the inner belief. When you say, how do I confess my belief in Christ? Baptism was very much part of that. How can I be saved? Confess and believe in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. How can I confess and believe? Acts 2.38 would read, repent and be baptized. For the New Testament church, the public confession of repentance from sin and belief in Christ was expressed through baptism. And we see in Acts 2.41 at Pentecost that about 3,000 people are saved, added to the church after receiving the gospel. And it says that they needed to repent and that they were, those who received his word were baptized. This is what they did. It was an immediate connection. But we've often separated salvation and baptism in our modern culture, and for good reason because we don't want people to believe a false doctrine that baptism in itself saves you, that the water saves you. To paraphrase R.C. Sproul on this topic, he said, if the water is the thing that saved us, why would Christians not stand on street corners with fire hoses soaking everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Right? He said, it doesn't make sense. The water is not salvific. It is not the thing that saves us. But as we look at baptism through the New Testament, we see it does carry with it a unique significance, something that's often, I believe, been lost in the modern American church, because it is a symbol of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, a reminder of the living hope that we have, which is why Peter uses it here, because he wants these suffering Christians, when they're in the middle of suffering, and they start asking the question, God, are you really good? Are you really in control? Are you really Lord? Because I don't know if this suffering is going to end, and I don't know that this is going to look the way that I want it to look. And Peter goes, Hey, do you remember your baptism? Do you remember the moment when you said, Jesus, you are Lord? Take hope, remember. Peter uses baptism to tie these elect exiles' minds as he calls them, back to this glorious truth. Because baptism is a symbol, isn't it? But it's also something more. It carries with it this unique significance that an ordinary symbol does not. It reminds us of the hope that we have in a risen Savior. And so while I don't believe Peter believed, and I don't believe Scripture teaches that baptism saves you, it is commanded by Jesus. We see that it's commanded by him at the Great Commission, and it's practiced by the early church throughout history. And so for us in this room, we have to ask the question, if Christ is your Lord, and you have not been baptized, and and hear me, I'm not trying to condemn when I say this, but if Jesus is our Lord and you have not been baptized, at the very least, we're disobeying a command of the one that we call Lord. And so in August... I think on August 21st, or somewhere around there, we're gonna have a baptism. And so if you have not been baptized, and you would like to do that, to follow the command of Jesus, to do that, and have that moment of remembrance, even for yourself, we'd love to do that. I will get in the tank all day long and dunk everybody. Like, we'll just do it. It's why we make a big deal out of baptism here, because it celebrates the work of our Savior. Because when everything falls apart, just like Peter tells these Christians who are suffering, when everything in our lives is falling apart, the thing that we cling to the hardest is the place where we have the greatest hope, and that is Jesus. It's why Peter points to baptism. It's why we make a big deal out of it here. Peter uses baptism to point us to that central truth. And he tells the Christians then, just as Noah was brought through the flood, God will bring you through. And Jesus submitted himself to the authorities of this world so that he might give his life for our sin. And now Jesus is victorious and he reigns forever. And so what does that mean for you? It means that you can be encouraged in the midst of suffering. That as you are trying to figure out how do I I navigate the tensions of this world, How do I live in my workplace following Jesus when it feels like everybody thinks I'm just nuts? How how do I have a marriage and a home that reflects the goodness and the glory of God? How do I do do this thing when I forget even who I am and I'm forgetting that Jesus is good? How do I navigate these tensions? Peter says, you can have hope. And his name is Jesus. Jesus. He will not fail you. He never has, and He never will. And though everything seems like it is falling apart, He does not. Peter wants us to see that Jesus suffered for us, Jesus died for us, He rose again for us, and He is now victorious and will come again. We have hope in Christ crucified and Christ to come. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our living hope, that you've given us Jesus, that we don't have to suffer, that we don't have to fear, that we can hope in you. As we worship you now through song, would you spur in our hearts a remembrance that you are our hope. And may we sing with confidence because of who you are and all you have done. It's in Jesus' name that we
0: pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review,